our verses again from James 1, verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin. Sin is defined by most believers in relatively simple terms, usually. Some of them tell us that sin is our transgression against the laws of God. And that's true. I was reading this morning that in the Greek, the word sin is hamartia, which means missing the mark. And that's also what sin is. And it's that, and but it's so much more. So much, much more. As I've been studying through what sin really is, I've found that sin is an insidious enemy to our soul. And it is by far the greatest enemy that we'll ever encounter. Because it is the one thing that will send us to hell. By its own definition, sin is sinister and it is treacherous. It is crafty. It is devious. It is deceptive. Sin knows no boundaries and it respects no boundaries. And sin has only one desire as it navigates its way throughout the recesses of our soul. One desire. It desires to have you, to have me, to own us, to control you and me. How do we know that? We know that because God himself told us that in some of the very beginning words of this Bible. I want you to turn with me to Genesis 4. Genesis chapter 4. And in these words, we're able to clearly see both the nature of sin and exactly how sin works its way out within the heart and mind of a person. In the example that's given here in this firstborn son of mankind, Cain. Listen to these words carefully and read along with me. And note here how sin took place in the exact manner that James, here in the New Testament, tells us that it takes place. For Cain, sin began, there is a thought, and then it became a desire, and then it slowly worked its way out into sin, into a murderous conclusion. Listen to these words. This is Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now here both brothers, Cain and Abel, had brought a sacrifice to God. Now we aren't told the whole story, but both of those young men knew exactly what the sacrifice should be in order for it to be acceptable to God. God requires the shedding of blood to cover over and to cleanse from sin. 
Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. That's what these scriptures tell us. Now God had demonstrated that earlier with Adam and Eve when he sacrificed the animal to make the clothing to cover over Adam and Eve's sin and their shame. So then we know that both men, Cain and Abel, knew the exact sacrifice that God required. Abel obeyed, but Cain did not. Abel brought the sacrifice of his firstborn lamb, but Cain brought the produce from the works of his own hands. Now, Cain's offering may seem to be a very reasonable offering to you and me. Why not? Why not? Why was Cain's offering not acceptable? We can ask that question because you and I like to do the very same thing in our own relationship with God. We want to give Him the offering that we're comfortable with giving. As Tom T. Hall said in his song, me and Jesus have our own thing going. You cannot do that. But you and I like to do that. We like to give Him the offerings that are comfortable to us. Talking with a former student at French camp who was convinced that they did not have to tithe referred to the Scriptures there in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. said, God wants us to be a cheerful giver. Give what is comfortable to you. We like to do that with our tithes and our offerings. We like to give that which is comfortable to us, and we like to quote verses like that. By the way, if you read those verses, you'll find that it really does not just free you up to throw a dollar into plate. That's not what the Lord is saying in those words. But that's what you can read if that's what you want to read. And that's what we like to read. And so we want to worship God the way we want to worship Him when it comes to tithes and offerings. That's what Cain did. There are other things too. We like to worship Him when we feel like it. When we feel like going to church. When we don't feel like going to church, we don't. I know some really sweet people that don't go to church. They hold church in their home. That's all right under certain circumstances, but the Lord says, no, I want you to be part of a community of believers. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. There's an importance in a church congregation. It's important for us to come and contribute to that congregation in our fellowship and in our love and in our ministry. Sometimes we will even go so far with our offerings to the Lord of witnessing to people. But only when it's comfortable to us. And we won't embarrass the person that we're talking to. We make up all sorts of excuses not to witness, but the Lord says, go ye into all this world. Preach this gospel. Make disciples. And it goes on and on. Too often, we're like Cain. We're not like his obedient brother. We're like Cain. And that kind of behavior does not please God. It does not please God. And we can see that here in these words. I'm going to read these words again for us. Verse 2, Genesis 4. Now, Abel kept flocks. Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and with his offering. But listen, but on Cain and his offering, 
he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? Did you hear those words? If you do what is right. He knew what was right. But he didn't do it. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Important word. We'll talk about that in a moment. It desires to have you, but you must master it. As I was studying this, I thought of things that go on in our families. How often have you told one of your children to go do a chore, but they don't follow through and do it? Instead, they later bring some kind of gift or peace offering to us, hoping that it'll satisfy us. But it doesn't. We wanted their obedience. A saying that our daughter had when she was a house parent at French camp. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Even if you delay doing whatever you know you're supposed to do, that's disobedience. And that is not pleasing to God. Here Cain, he wanted to worship God under his own conditions. And it simply was not acceptable to God. When God made that clear to him, he became angry and dejected. That's the typical response. Now fortunately, God knows our thoughts when we're being tempted to do something wrong. And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I read these for us last week, He'll always provide us a way of, uh, of escape. Those words are in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, and God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. Now here God demonstrated that He was going to be faithful. He knew that Cain wanted to go out and kill his brother Abel. And God warned him away from that sin with these words here. He said, why are you angry? Now this is before Cain went out there and killed his brother. He's giving him a warning. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. He said, now sin is crouching at your door. And if you don't do what is right, it it desires to have you. But you must master it. It will have you. I want us to consider what's taking place within the heart and mind of Cain. And especially as it relates to the words that we're studying here in James 1. In James 1, 14, it says, Every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. That was was taking place in Cain's mind. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That very thing was taking place within Cain right at the moment God was giving him this warning. Again, let me say it. Sin begins within a person's mind and in their heart. First is a thought and it's a desire. Here Cain thought that his sacrifice should have been acceptable to God. And by the way, that's the way of our self-centered way of thinking. I thought it, therefore it was right. By the way, also understand that this is the very same kind of sin that Cain's mother and father had committed. 
they wanted to be able to make decisions for themselves irrespective of God's desires and His plans. They weren't denying that God existed. They simply did not want to do what He wanted them to do. They wanted to be able to make their own decisions. Cain did the same thing. They passed their sin along to the next generation. I think it's the fourth commandment, is it, that tells us that I will visit judgment on your iniquities to the third and the fourth generation. Here it's going on to the next generation. Cain's sin began exactly as James tells us that it does. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I want to offer what I want to offer. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This this was born within Cain's mind and heart. First as a thought, then a desire. Then he became angry because God rejected his sacrifice. And then note this utter foolishness of Cain's response. Utter foolishness. Devoid of morality. Cain was angry at God, so he was planning then to go out and kill a completely innocent other person. His brother. And that's the way of sin. It makes no sense at all. You're angry at God, so you go kill somebody. Note here in verse 7 also the way that God describes sin. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Folks, those are strange words indeed. Strange words. Incomprehensible to our ordinary manner of thinking. In these words, God is actually describing sin as having a mind and a will of its own. He's describing sin as being a kind of independent entity within us that has the personality of a predatory animal that's able to think and to plan and then to do evil. Here, sin is crouching behind a door. It's thinking and it's planning. It has a mind that's able to think through those things. Folks, that is incomprehensible to my mind. But it's true. Here, sin is crouching behind a door intending to pounce out from behind that door on Cain, on you and me, at any opportune moment. Here also God tells us that sin has the ability to desire. Desire is a strong emotion. An emotion that drives people to do things. That's a strange thought to me. You know, most of us think of sin as being just a matter of us breaking one of those laws of God. I mentioned that definition earlier. And that is true. That is sin when we break those laws. But we think it's as simple as that, that if we step around God's laws and don't break any of them, that we're going to be just fine. But that's not so. That's not the way God is describing sin in these words. God is describing sin clearly as being an aggressive predator that hunts us down 
comes after us. He describes sin as being relentless too because it spurred Cain on until he actually then left the presence of the Lord, went out, killed his brother. Now the implicit warning to us from these words is that sin does the very same thing within you and me. It begins with a thought, develops into a desire, that emotion that starts to drive us to do things. And if that desire is left unattended, if we don't take that way of escape, it grows into this next stage, and this next stage, and the next. And as our minds ponder and mull and churn, that's what takes place with me. I churn a lot on the matter. At some point, all of that churning and pondering and mulling around in our mind, there's a trigger point that takes place. That's when sin begins to master us, to have us, to control us, and to control our behavior. Now, whether our thoughts churn on perhaps some fellow employee that we work with, perhaps we're angry because they have very poor work habits, poor behavior, language, all of those things that just offend us that can work its way into us then doing something about it. What if our problem is a whole other problem, a problem with lust? Do you lust? Our minds can churn, and so we have over 50% of the marriages that end up in divorce because that lust was actually put into behavior. And a man cheats on his wife or wife on her husband. Again, whatever those thoughts are that have just started in the back of your mind, left unchecked, left unchecked those thoughts and desires and lusts, they turn into sin. Without warning, they burst out from behind that door. If we'd have checked it back there at that time when God warned us, when He put that warning within our mind, we'd have been all right. But we let it carry on forward. And suddenly we weren't able to contain it. Suddenly we find ourselves caught up in and controlled by our sinful desire. Most often the consequences are devastating. We can hide there in plain sight. I'm telling you this because not only from the Scripture, I know it from my own history. Sin can hide there in plain sight. We don't seem to even know that it's there until it's already provoked us and urged us on into a condition where our marriages, our families, our jobs, sometimes our whole life is wrecked. How is sin able to do that so effectively, to hide there within plain sight and move within the recesses of our soul and thus not realize that it's present. It can do that because sin is a part of who I am. Sin is a part of who you are. And we didn't just pick it up somewhere along the way. We brought it with us into this life. A sinful nature is part of our DNA. Started in Adam's DNA, went on down to Cain, 
right on down to us. You and I and every other person born have a sin nature. We're totally corrupt. So corrupt, listen, so corrupt that every thought and every desire is bent towards sin. Do you believe that? Let me say it another way. It's not that that nature that is born into us might someday, if exposed to the wrong elements, will possibly sin. No, our nature will sin. It has no choice because it does come into existence here within us totally depraved. Absolutely unfixable, unable to be healed or nursed into good health. And unfortunately, there are many devoutly believing Christians that believe otherwise. That just because we were created in the image of God, that our nature is basically good. Basically good. And given the right opportunity, our free will will just step on forward and do the right thing. And then our sinful nature can be cured. Sadly, that is not what Scripture says. It does not say that. does not say that. There are many Scriptures that tell us differently. Romans 3 came to my mind. Let me read this for you. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. As it is written, Romans 3, 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. No one who seeks God. You hear this expression, seekers. People are seeking a relationship with Christ. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture says no one who seeks God. We are all, we have this bent. It says all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So what's wrong with a nature like ours? Why can't our sinful nature be healed within us? The reason is our sinful nature was never alive to begin with. It was never alive to begin with, even from our birth. We were not born innocent and later to fall into this condition of sin. Our nature was born dead within us, completely dead. And our efforts to get a dead thing to have life we can give it resuscitation all we possibly could do. And it'll never come to life. It's dead. And what God does instead is He tells us to abandon that old sin nature to its own death. Let it stay dead. But be reborn in the nature of Christ. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. The only real cure for our condition is described in some of my favorite, most favorite verses in Scripture. And it's in Ezekiel 36, beginning verse 26. He says to us, he says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Our natural heart, the one we're born with, is a heart of stone. Completely incapable of being alive. A rock does not live. It has no capacity to live. And our heart is a heart of stone. Incapable of being alive. 
And because of that, God needs to put a whole new heart within us. And He needs to put a whole new spirit within us. And then He also, notice here in verse 27 of Ezekiel 36, and then He says, I will put My Spirit in your spirit. I will put My Spirit in you. And it's then and only then that we're able to master our sin. As we're told there in Genesis 4, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The only way we can master sin is by the power of the continuing indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit. And the only way we can have God's Holy Spirit living within us is for us to receive that blessed salvation that Jesus provided through His shed blood on the cross. It's the only way. It's the only way. It's the only way that sin is defeated and that we can master it. Listen to these words and I'll close. These come from Romans chapter 6. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. See, that's what took place with Cain. That's what will take place with you and me without the presence of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not be your master since you're no longer under the law but under grace. Praise the Lord. May we pray.